So we are reading from uh, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet and began to walk. Then, walking, leaping and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realised he was the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade, where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy, righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed and you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. And now Matthew will bring the next reading. Thank you. Uh, So the next reading is from Acts 4, 1 to 18. Um, While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it, so the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. The next day, the council of all rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, uh, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to you and all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, 
for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who was healed standing right among them, there was nothing that the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber, conferring among themselves. What should we do with these men? They asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Good evening. Uh, we've got so much to read tonight. We needed two people. Um, so thank you, Scott and Matt. Um, sometimes we just want to really look at a little bit of the Bible, don't we? We want to really look in depth, maybe at a verse or two. But sometimes we need the whole story. Um, and tonight we just needed that big picture um, so that we can really dig into uh, the things that we believe God wants to say to us this evening. I wonder how many of our devoted message series you've been around for. And um, we have had some great, great messages. It has been really challenging. And it's quite a while ago now where Sue said, you know, would you like to do the 31st? And I said, yeah, sounds good. Um, and I was thinking and I was praying through what it is that, um, that God would like me to share tonight. And um, I felt like God gave me an idea from the book of Acts and the more I've prayed into this and the more the devoted series has unfolded, the more I feel like, yeah, this really fits. So much of our devoted series was based on Acts 2, verse 42, and this amazing phrase where it says, they devoted themselves. And the story we're going to look at tonight allows us to look further into and learn from the lives of these early devoted believers. And maybe challenges us to look even further into what could be the next step for us in our own devoted journey. Because the question we're going to be asking ourselves this evening is, do we dare to share? I was quite pleased when I thought of that, actually. <laughs> so Act 3 tells us a short story of a miracle performed by Peter and by John. It's around AD 30, and these events take place in the months following Jesus' death his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. These disciples, Peter and John, have seen Jesus. They've seen him risen from the dead. They've been given the great commission. They've watched Jesus taken right up into heaven before their very eyes. They've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. The early church has been formed. And at the moment, in the time of this story, they're in Jerusalem, and there is starting to be just a bit of a buzz about them. If we look back into chapter 2 of Acts, it tells us all about when the Holy Spirit came upon them and how the disciples were speaking in lots of different languages. P Peter went out and he preached to the crowd. Verse 37 of chapter 2 says, Peter's words convinced them deeply. Verse 41 of chapter 2 said, those who believed were baptized, about 3,000 in all. And we read towards the end of chapter 2 about the apostles performing many miraculous signs and wonders. They were worshipping in the temple every day. All the time, God was adding to the number of those who were being saved. It's exciting. It's an exciting time to be in Jerusalem. The disciples were causing a bit of a stir. They were starting to make a bit of a name for themselves. And as always, some people were loving it. But also, as we will see, there are a few people who were not pleased with current events. 
So this is where we pick up our story. It's three in the afternoon, and Peter and John, these disciples, these close friends of Jesus, were heading to the temple to pray. The Jews would have prayed three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. And one thing that I love about this, one thing I love about Peter and John, is that they have received the Holy Spirit. They have been with Jesus in person. They have been performing miracles, but they don't consider themselves too important to get to the house of God and to pray. They still understand that that matters. Prayer is important. Sue talked to us about prayer this morning. It was great, wasn't it? And it's as they head into this three o'clock prayer service that they meet a man. And the Bible tells us this man has been lame from birth. He's never been able to walk. So each day he's positioned at what is called the beautiful gate. That would have been one of the entrances to the temple. We, we can read that it was made of fine Corinthian brass. It was 75 feet tall. That's about 23 meters. It had huge double doors. It would have been spectacular. And the lame man and his friends who placed him there, I think they were probably pretty smart because this gate was beautiful, but it was also very popular. And lots of people on their way to pray, probably trying to look a bit holy, um, would have given him money. This was probably one of the more lucrative begging spots in Jerusalem. And this man was a familiar sight in that spot. He'd sat there for over 40 years and he was well recognised. So Peter and John come along and the first thing Peter says to him is, well, I haven't got any money. And you can maybe imagine the man's face falling. He's probably thinking, well, move along then. But then Peter says, well, what I do have, I give to you. Get up and walk. And the man is healed. And the detail that Luke, who is the author of this book and a doctor, puts into this short passage is really interesting because this passage gives specifically clear medical information about what happens. Luke uses specific terms for the feet and for the ankle bones. And he describes this idea of a socket coming together as the man leaps up. So what does he do now? Well, he does what anybody would do if they've been healed after a lifetime of begging and disability. He runs, he jumps, he shouts. He tells everyone who has previously seen him sitting there how he has been healed, how Peter and John have performed an amazing miracle. He makes absolutely sure there is nobody that doesn't hear this incredible story. Verse 11 in chapter 3 says, They all rushed out in amazement. People noticed. People knew that it was Peter and John that had done this. So what does Peter do next? Does he ask if anybody else would like healing? Does he go and look for other miracles he can perform? No. He goes straight into the temple and he begins to speak. And verse 12 to the end of chapter 3 that Scott read are the words of Peter speaking in the temple. He shares the truth of Jesus based on the Old Testament prophets. He uses stories and words that the Jews would have believed and understood. And he doesn't mess about. He challenges them on their behavior, on their treatment of Jesus, and he tells them exactly how to be saved. He is straight to the point. And maybe Peter speaks like this because he's full of passion. He's excited, I'm sure he is. But maybe he also speaks like this because he knows he doesn't actually have a lot of time. Because in chapter 4, verse 1, we read that the leading priests, the captain of the temple guard, some of the Sadducees are listening and they're getting more and more disturbed, more and more annoyed. 
because they don't believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. They are still entrenched in that Jewish law. And what Peter is saying threatens them. It threatens the way things are done. It threatens the control that they have and the power that they exert. And they can't have that. So the verse tells us that they came over and they arrested Peter and John. The implication from the passage is that this was sudden. They rushed over, they grabbed them roughly, and Peter and John are thrown in prison, ready for a trial in the morning. And this trial takes place in what is called the Sanhedrin, which is basically the supreme court of the Jews. And we read in chapter 4, verse 5, it says that all the rulers, the elders, the teachers of religious law met. It tells us that Annas, the high priest, was there. He'd brought Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and even quite a few of his relatives. It was a big and daunting crowd. And Peter and John are brought, just the two of them, to stand in front of this court. And the leaders demand answers. What is going on? So in the face of this intimidating crowd, how does Peter answer? Does he plead for freedom? Does he make excuses? No. He does exactly what we've already seen him do in chapter 3. He brings the truth of Jesus. He challenges the leadership. He speaks boldly and with wisdom. And again, chapter 4, verses 8 to 12, is Peter sharing in no uncertain terms what Jesus did and why. Verse 12, Peter says this, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Peter is really clear. There's Jesus, and there's only Jesus. He is the only way. And these rulers and the leaders are listening. You can imagine them exchanging frustrated, angry looks. But by the end, they are a little bit stuck because they hate what Peter is saying. They're threatened by his claims about Jesus, but they can't deny the power. They've seen the evidence of the miracle. Half of Jerusalem already knows about it. The lame man has made sure about that. So what do they do? Well, they have to save face. They can't have Peter and John destroying all that they stand for, all the power that they have. But equally, they can't be seen to be punishing these men for something good that everybody's already seen. In verse 16, we have them saying to each other, what shall we do with these men? So they take advice, they discuss their options, and they make a decision. Verse 18 says this. So they called the apostles back in and they commanded them never ever to teach or speak in the name of Jesus again. And then Peter and John are no doubt threatened, no doubt with all kinds of violence and imprisonment and they're sent away. And you know, all of this story probably happens in the space of 24 hours. What a day. You know, life in the early church was fast moving. It was exciting. But let's go back for a moment, shall we, to verse 18 of chapter 4. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. We see this message again and again. We see it in chapter 5 when the disciples have been arrested again. It's kind of a common theme in the book of Acts. Preach, get arrested. Preach, get arrested. Uh, But the instruction is the same. Verse 28 of chapter 5, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the instructions that Peter and John are given specifically relate to talking about Jesus, to speaking in his name. They are told in no uncertain terms that that is not acceptable and it will be punished. 
But we've read, haven't we, that the disciples are healing people. Later in Acts, Peter even raises somebody from the dead. But they're not told not to do that. Just don't give Jesus the credit. We know, don't we, that the early church are taking care of each other. They've created this amazing community, praying, living, sharing together. But again, that seems to be okay. They're not told to stop doing that. We've read about them taking care of the poor. We're told they sold possessions, they used their money to help people in need, they gave out food. Even the early church ran a food bank. But again, they're not told to stop doing that either. They're given one instruction, and it's very clear. Never again speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And I wonder, just while I was thinking on this passage, if there are some similarities between the culture of Jerusalem in those days and the culture of our Western society today. When we think about the UK today, we think about our local community. Maybe there are some parallels here. Because our culture and our community is really happy for church to be a force for good in society, to help people. People are pleased, aren't they, when churches run food banks in a pandemic. Families are happy to come and to entertain kids at toddler groups. People like it when the church takes action on poverty and homelessness. The world loves it when Christians are kind, caring people, doing good things. I hear people say, my friends say, oh, it's great that your church does that. Your church is really helpful. But there's a limit, isn't there, sometimes, to what the world wants from the church. Yes to social action, yes to community care, but there's a line that they don't want us to cross. And sometimes that's the line that takes us from doing all the great things that we do, and these things are great, into talking about Jesus. That's when the barriers go up. That's when it's fine for you to have your religion, but don't force it on me. Don't tell me what it's all about. And particularly on our Western culture here in the UK today, it's not often acceptable to have a faith that says certain things are right and certain things are wrong. So what do we do about that as a church, as individuals? What can we learn from Peter or John? What did they do? Let's have another look at chapter three. Peter had just healed a man in front of absolutely loads of people. This would have been such an opportunity for fame, for popularity. He could have asked for all kinds of people to be brought to him. He could have opened some kind of holy hospital, taken all the glory and the praise that would no doubt have been on offer. But what does he do? Well, chapter 3, verse 12 is key. He saw his opportunity and he addressed the crowd. Not an opportunity for himself to look good or to get all that fame and glory, but an opportunity to share who Jesus is, what he has done, and to offer people the truth of salvation that was there for them. Same in chapter four. Peter and John have been arrested. They've been imprisoned. They knew what had happened to Jesus could easily be the outcome of this trial for them. It would have been so easy for them to get caught in trying to explain their way out of it, being afraid, trying to escape potential punishments. But did they do that? No, they don't. Again, we see them taking that opportunity amid the fear and amid the intimidation to share the truth, to declare that salvation is on offer but only through Jesus Christ. The pattern throughout the book of Acts, 
these devoted early believers, prioritizing sharing Jesus. Peter and John got what was important in those early days of the church. They didn't buy into this idea that they were just going to be good people who did good things, that the church existed to be helpful in the community. And they could easily have taken that position given all the things that were being said and done. They could easily have said, okay, this is too much pressure. Let's just keep our heads down, do the good things. But they don't do that. For these devoted early believers, every situation was an opportunity to talk about Jesus. They knew what their calling was. I imagine those words of Jesus were ringing in their ears. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Speak of salvation. Preach the truth that sets people free. Peter and John got it. The holy living, care for the poor is vital. The amazing miracles done in the name of Jesus were awesome. But they did not miss the main thing. Jesus was always the main thing. That's a big challenge, isn't it? Is Jesus our main thing? Are happy to be known for being nice? Known for not swearing or gossiping? Known for being kind? And those things are good. As a church, are we happy to be known for good works, for community action, for helping people? And those things are good. But don't we want a bit more than that? Don't we want a bit more than just fitting in to what society wants from Christians? Be nice, do good things, but don't rock the boat. I do want to be really clear this evening that I'm not saying we don't do those things. We do amazing things in our church. And those things are important. They are really, really important. They are God's call. When we talked about being spirit-led, we looked at the fruits of the spirit and how God plants these great things into us so that we can go out and live lives that are good. Lives that look different. Lives that bring positivity to those around us. We talked about that everyday holiness that is the call on all of our lives. These things are vital and Jesus says to do them. We're called to serve this world and the people in it. We're instructed in the Bible to feed the hungry, to care for those who are sad and broken. These things are important. But they're also important because these things that people see in the way that we live are also the platform from which we can speak. This holy living, those days when you don't swear, those days when you behave differently, those relationships that you spend time building with those around you. That's what buys us the trust and the credibility that allows us to speak into people's lives. Jesus gives so many warnings about hypocrisy. Don't think you can preach it, but not live it. We have to live it. But sometimes do we fall into the trap maybe of living it, but not speaking it. When Paul writes to the Philippians, he says this, Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. And shining like stars is great. Living differently into a higher set of standards is not optional for the children of God. But that verse doesn't leave us there. We do those things as we hold out 
or hold forth the word of life. Yes, we run food banks, we care for the poor. Yes, we invite our community to come in and to feel welcome here. But don't we have so much more to offer than that? We have the word of life. And that is the best part. Are we making Jesus the main thing? Like Peter and John, taking and making opportunities. I wonder if you know what a mole is. You might think, yes, it's a small animal that digs up my garden. Um, But actually a mole is also the term that is used to describe an undercover agent. um, Positioned in a certain country or a society to fit in. So nobody knows that they're there. But then secretly and silently to feed back information to their country's government. Possibly some of the most famous moles were the Cambridge Five. Living as students. um, Fitting in, looking relatively normal, but all the time working undercover passing vital information to the Soviets during World War II and the Cold War, looking like everybody else, but secretly working for the KGB. I don't think God wants us to be Christian moles, blending in, fitting in, being good, keeping people happy, by doing all the things that the world is happy for the church to provide. I think he wants us to be like Peter and John and those other early devoted believers. He wants us to remember like they did, that that great commission is stamped across all of our lives. Go out and make disciples of all nations. And this applies to all of us. It applies in our homes, our offices, our schools, our neighborhoods. Jesus wants people to know about him. But Jesus wants people to know him. I wonder, would you like to know how good I am at this? The answer is not very good at all. Um, And this is something I find really hard, and I'm scared sometimes. And when I first started thinking around this topic for this evening, I was so challenged by my own choices in my life. So I have been trying to do this a little bit more. In fact, I think my teaching assistant at school thinks I've lost the plot. Um, And I've definitely overdone it on a couple of occasions. But I stand here this evening as someone who is on a real journey with this. So often I've patted myself on the back for being the person at work that isn't moaning or gossiping, pleasing myself if I've been kind or I've done something extra nice. But how often have I actually been prepared to take this to the next level and actually do what Peter and John did? Actually take the opportunity to say what it's all about. How often have I actually told the people around me what Jesus means to me and the difference he makes in my life? This isn't something that I find easy and I think quite a few of us would agree that it's a challenge. But it is for all of us. Sometimes I've looked at Ephesians 4 verse 11. It says this. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And maybe I've thought sometimes, well, that's okay, because that's not my gift. I'm good at the admin. Or maybe you might think, well, I'm gifted in the music. Or I'm a, I'm a practical kind of person. I don't, I don't need to do the evangelist stuff. That's not my gift. But unfortunately, we don't get away with it that easily, because each of us are uniquely and beautifully and perfectly positioned by God for a purpose. And in the book of 1 Peter, we read this. Chapter 3, verse 15. It says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. 
We've heard a lot about Peter already tonight. This is the same Peter that wrote this letter. And he's writing to a load of churches who are facing persecution. He's writing to encourage them. But the point is that he's not writing to a specific group of evangelists. He's not writing to some special teachers. He's addressing loads of people in lots of different churches. And he's saying to all of them, you need to be ready. You need to be prepared to give an answer. And the same is true for us. We can't wait for the next Billy Graham to pop into the office or for Craig Rochelle to arrive at the door. We are positioned by God to live the holy life he calls us to and to fulfill our own great commission to make disciples. Romans 10 verse 14 tells us this really clearly. It's a really challenging verse. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? How will they know if we don't tell them? How will the people in our families know if we don't tell them? How will the people in our offices and schools know if we don't tell them? How will our friends know if we don't tell them? I wonder who God might be calling us to be that someone for. And I guess this prompts a really wide range of reactions in us. Maybe you feel great about this. Maybe you love it. You are confident. You know that God has equipped you for this. And you think, yeah, great. I'm on it. Thank you. Well, good for you. (laughs) Or maybe you're a bit like me. And this isn't something that you find easy. And the thought of actually putting words behind your actions is scary. And moving your faith from that which is implicit in the way you behave to actually being prepared to explicitly say it out loud makes you feel uncertain and inadequate. Well, you're in good company because as we read in Acts, as the disciples are released from the court, the first thing they do is they find their friends. In chapter 4, verse 23, it says, As soon as Peter and John were released, they found the other believers, and together they pray for boldness. They're not overconfident. They're not taking it in their stride. They are crying out to God for his Holy Spirit and for boldness. And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit empowered them. The Holy Spirit filled them and led them, and they spoke boldly. Not because they were amazing evangelists, but because God was working through them with his Spirit. We're called to this, but we're called to be Spirit-led, empowered by the Holy Spirit. You might think, well, what on earth would I say? Keep it simple. Your friends don't want a 40-minute, 7.3, goodness knows what, theological explanation. They just want to know about you, about how this changes your life, how the Bible and the love of Jesus can have an impact on real people in 2022. So much power in your story. We could talk all year about how and where and um, ideas for how we do that. We don't have time to go into that this evening. But one thing I do know is that we don't need to be apologetic or embarrassed about what we have to offer. Romans 1 verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. And so often the church thinks, sorry, the world thinks that the church offers nothing but judgment, hypocrisy, religious rule following. But you know, the truth could not be any further from that. The truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ offers freedom 
It offers acceptance, forgiveness, wholeness, peace. I could go on. You know, in the aftermath of the Manchester bombing, there was a huge benefit concert. And this concert was entitled One Love. And if you look at pictures of that concert, people are there with all kinds of banners, and the banners said love. And they said hope. And they said peace. Because the world seems to want what Jesus offers, but somehow they don't think they want Jesus. Or maybe they've just never really been told that all this love, all this hope, all this peace, it's not found in a concert or in other people or in somehow the world finding out a way for itself to somehow do things better. It's in Jesus. It's in the truth that we have to offer. It's in this word of life. So maybe it is time to rock the boat a little bit for the church to stop conforming to what the world wants from it and start to do as Peter and John did and get out there and get our story told. And maybe it's time to rock our own personal boats just a little bit. Who needs us to tell them the truth? Who needs us to tell them our story? Maybe a little bit at a time. Who needs us to take those opportunities that pop up to just take a deep breath and open our mouths and go for it. And then the best bit is that we leave the rest to God. We don't change people's hearts. God does. We're just called to be obedient. You know, when Peter and John were sharing in the Sanhedrin, it's probable that there was a guy named Saul in there hearing the truth being spoken. And we know, don't we, that it took a massive and dramatic intervention from heaven before Paul was fi- Saul was finally converted. But you never know who's listening. And you never know the seeds that your words might plant. As we close, I want to tell you about a really interesting person that we meet in chapter 5 of Acts. Following on from the events that we've had a look at this evening, the disciples continue to speak and heal, and then, surprise, surprise, continue to get arrested. Um, And in chapter 5, we find them there again, in front of the Sanhedrin, and we meet Gamaliel. Let me read to you. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Then he said to his colleagues, Men of Israel, take care what you are planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow, Theudas, who pretended to be somebody great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed, and his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all his followers were scattered. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they're planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even find yourself fighting against God. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And here we are, over 2,000 years later, living in the truth of that wisdom. The truth of Jesus has not faded. It's not died out. It's not been overthrown. And do you know why that is? Because it's true. Jesus, the Son of God, did come to earth to live and to die 
and to rise again so that we could know him and be forgiven. It is true. Gamaliel was right. So many fakes and pretend messiahs have come and gone, but truth prevails. Truth stands the test of time. And you know, we're also here, aren't we, 2,000 years later for another reason. Because devoted believers throughout the world and down the ages have talked about Jesus. They've talked in cathedrals, they've talked in monasteries, they've talked in football stadiums, they've talked in undercover churches. But they've also talked in homes, talked in families, they've talked in offices and by school gates, they've talked on football pitches and with their friends. The truth of Jesus passed down from generation to generation, never fading, never wearing out, never overthrown, because it's true. And now that baton has passed to us and it's in our hands. What are we going to do with it? Romans 10, that brilliant reminder, how will they know unless someone tells them? Those early devoted believers took every opportunity and the truth of Jesus transformed lives. It's been doing so ever since. Wonder who in your world needs to know this? Who in your life needs you to step out, to take your devotion to the next level and to be that someone that hands them the word of life? I'm just going to respond now.